A reading from the book of 1 John, beginning in the first chapter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Alleluia, Christ is risen. St. Irenaeus was a bishop in 2nd century Lyon, and he once wrote that interpreting scripture is like an artist making a mosaic. The artist takes all of these tiles and gems and arranges them carefully in the correct way in order to make an image of the king of the land. But, says Irenaeus, the artist could very well have taken those same tiles and arrange them to make the image of a fox rather than the image of the king. Likewise, he says that the key for us is to arrange Scripture according to its true image. There are interpretive choices to be made throughout the entire book, and we have to follow the key, lest we inadvertently create an image of the fox rather than the true image, the interpretive key that was given to the apostles and handed down through the ages of the church, which is Christ crucified and resurrected. That is the image that Scripture should portray when the tiles are arranged correctly. Christ crucified and resurrected. This is what is on display for us in both our gospel lesson and in our New Testament lesson this evening. In Luke 24, the risen Christ appears to his disciples. This is the second such appearance where he opens their minds to understand Scripture just in this one chapter. And we're told that they're frightened at the sight of him, but after showing them that he is no ghost, 
We're told that he opened their minds to understand scriptures as being written about him, about his suffering, about his crucifixion and his resurrection on the third day. The scriptures he's referring to here are, of course, the Hebrew scriptures, what we refer to as the Old Testament. The Psalms that we sing almost every week, the law of Moses, the writings of the prophets spread out across centuries, all of them are mosaic tiles. And Christ shows his apostles how to arrange them into an icon of himself. And that is essentially what we have in the New Testament, is an arrangement of Scripture to portray Christ the King. This is almost exactly what St. John is up to in his epistle that we had read for us earlier. John here is laying out almost a, a crystallized distillation of the apostolic witness in these first verses of his first epistle. And in the original language, he actually starts this letter in a really strange way. He withholds the main verb for multiple verses as a way of highlighting what the apostolic witness is all about. His letter starts literally like this. What was from the beginning, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, this life was revealed and we have seen it and testified to it and declared to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us we declare, right? All of that is just him describing what their declaration is. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The apostles were eyewitnesses of Christ's death and resurrection. In fact, there's a, there's a fun way of understanding uh, St. Thomas, the doubter, you know, the guy that we like to pick on who said, I'm not going to believe until I see him and touch him. In some ways, he, he was doubting. But in other ways, he was actually demanding that he be fulfilled as an apostle because the apostles all had to see and touch the resurrected Christ. That's what Thomas is about. They touched his body. They watched him eat food, right? As a way of confirming to them, this was not an apparition of a dead man. This is not a ghost, they looked upon him. John says this in two ways, right? He makes a distinction between them seeing Jesus and them looking upon Jesus. It's almost as if seeing him resides in the realm of his incarnation, his true humanity, that they actually saw physically with their eyes that here was God in flesh as a man. And in looking upon him, it's almost as if that resides in the realm of his transfiguration, his true divinity, that they looked upon his glory, that the Spirit actually revealed to them something that human sight couldn't alone confirm, that Christ is fully man and fully God. But notice, the apostolic witness doesn't simply accrue the facts. It's not just that they saw him and touched him and looked upon him. It's not just that he's fully God and fully man. It's not just that he has died and risen again. No, there, there's something far more mystical, beautiful, and beyond our comprehension here that this Messiah, this crucified and risen Lord, St. John tells us three times in rapid-fire succession, is the word of life, life, and eternal life. This is why in John's gospel account, Christ tells the scribes 
that they search the scriptures for eternal life, but they're doing so almost in vain because the scriptures testify about Christ himself. So to refuse him is to refuse life. So this declaration about the crucified and risen Christ that is the fulfillment, the icon of all scripture, the one who is himself eternal life, this declaration goes forth as the apostles take the gospel message to the corners of the earth. Why? It's because in the declaration of Christ's cruciform kingship, the Spirit is at work bringing about reconciliation. I talked about this a few weeks ago, the the bizarre strangeness of preaching, that we just sort of allow someone to get up and start talking while everyone else sits silently, right? But it's because in the actual declarative act, the Spirit is at work bringing about reconciliation, or as St. John puts it in his epistle, we declare this message about what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is truly with the Father and the Son. And as most New Testament scholars will tell you, anytime the Father and Son are referenced, the Spirit is just assumed. He's there existing between them and among them. Now, the word that John is using here is koinonia, which is a word used throughout the New Testament to describe the communion of the early church, and it's often translated as fellowship. But i got to be honest, fellowship sort of calls to mind like stale Entenmann donuts and old Folgers coffee for me. Anybody else? Grew up in a rural Oregon Baptist church? All right. They did their best with those Entenmanns, man, those, the white powder. It's hilariously unfortunate that we, even including me, refer to that room back there as the fellowship hall. And I think John actually would be shocked that we might consider that fellowship would be anything except what happens in here, right? What he's getting at is this very thing we're about to do. This is true fellowship. John is getting at the participation offered to us by Christ in the church's sacramental life. This is a fellowship, it's an intimacy, it's a participation that emanates outward from the Eucharist altar, and it is a sharing in the bread, in the one cup, the one faith, the one baptism, all of which is a participation in the one Lord Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, fellowship doesn't stop here. It definitely happens over in that room as well and in our own living rooms and dining rooms. But it's not as something distinct or separate from what's happening here, right? There's fellowship out there because the baptismal waters have flooded this place to a degree that it actually spills out of this room into the rest of the world, illuminating God's creation. It flows outward into his world, all of which becomes charged with the grandeur of God, and we become illuminated by his presence. This is what's on display for us in the rite of baptism, which we witnessed just a few weeks ago at our Easter vigil. Those children that were brought to the font have been illuminated by the light of Christ. This is what Paul talks about when he says that you've been transferred out of a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. They've been illuminated by the light of Christ and brought into the fellowship with the church, which is the fellowship of God the Father and God the Son, right? That's what was happening in baptism. 
The apostolic message is one that the apostles heard from Christ himself, John tells us, which is that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And so if you're with us at the baptisms, you remember in the rite, the baptized are given candles lit from the paschal candle. The light of Christ is given to those who were incorporated into him. His light becomes their light as he indwells their life. And, says St. John, all the baptized who have been brought into this light are to walk in the light and no longer walk about in the darkness of sin and death. St. John makes it very clear that walking in the light does not mean sinlessness. This is one of those passages that is just so thorny. The way that he sort of weaves in and out with his language, it's really hard to follow the plot. Is he saying that we're supposed to never sin again, and therefore if we are, we're somehow cut off? No, on the contrary. It's people who claim to be sinless that are self-deceived. But in one of the clearest expressions we have of why we do what we do in the liturgy in confession is in John's letter here that in confessing our sins, the faithful and just one forgives us our sins and cleanses us with his blood. That's what it means to walk in the light. It doesn't mean to be perfect. It means to bring our shame and our guilt and our misdoings into his light, into his presence, and confess them and be forgiven. Christ the righteous is our advocate with the Father, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, John says. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. The whole world, throughout all time and space, Christ's sacrifice is so beyond what was needed that there is nothing you could do that would cut him away from you if you just come back time and again as you need and confess your sins to him, he forgives you. Now this right here, in John talking about Christ being an atoning sacrifice, is a breathless antinomy. It is a paradox within a few short verses. I mean, how is it, how could it be that Christ is life himself, eternal life, the word of life, and yet also an atoning sacrifice whose blood cleanses us, presupposing that his blood is shed and he enters into death. This is the mystery of the Easter Triduum, those three days that the church continues to tease out week after week for centuries. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ has trampled down death by death. And upon those in the, in the tombs, he is bestowing life. How can he be life himself and also the atoning sacrifice? To a certain degree, this mystery cannot be explained. The rational mind cannot gain purchase on such a thing. And that's why, again, preaching is so weird. Because I'm not here to explain the mystery, just to declare it. 
That's the church's job, to declare the mystery of Christ, the life of the world, giving himself up for the life of the world. We declare it in the breaking of bread, and we declare it in the breaking of bread and word. And in his bread, it's his body given to his people, holy gifts for those who have been made holy by his blood. When John enjoins us to walk in the light, essentially what he is telling us is this. May we declare this mystery with our lives. May our whole lives be lived in the glorious light of Christ so that all who encounter us as his light in the world may have fellowship with us, which is a true fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, the one who was and is and is to come. Alleluia. Christ is risen.